So can you just start by saying your name and what your position is here? My name is Martin Landre. I'm Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology in the Nuffield Department of Population Health here at the University of Oxford. Great. And without giving me your entire life history, can you just give me a, a quick summary of how you got to where you are now? Yes, I grew up not far from here. I grew up 20 miles west of here um, in a village called Bampton. My father was the village GP. My mother was a part-time anaesthetist, um, so medicine was all around me. Um, I went to school, um, finished at Abingdon School, again just down the road, uh, and then went to medical school. I knew I wanted to be a doctor from the age of about 10 or 11. Um, and then from medical school... Which, got in, where did you go to medical school? I went to medical school in the University of Birmingham. Right. Uh, it's our 30th reunion tomorrow. Um, a dean of medicine at uh, Birmingham uh, left sufficient money for every time for there to be a 30th anniversary for every year. My parents went to their 30th 30 years ago. Now my <laughs> turn this time. So I recommend that to whatever dean of medicine wants to do with their <laughs> legacies this time round. It's a very nice tradition. Uh, so I went to Birmingham University uh, to study medicine. Um, wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do, but increasingly got interested in in hospital medicine and increasingly in prescribing. What, how do you know which drugs to prescribe, when to prescribe, how much to prescribe, how do you know it works, how do you know about what the side effects are, what to look out for and so on. And from that you quickly get into clinical trials because that's how you find out. Can you just give me a, an idea of what the, what the state of prescribing was at, at, at that time? Well, um, well yeah, we did it perfectly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, the state of prescribing at the time, I mean, I had a brilliant clinical pharmacology lecturer in Birmingham called um, Professor Martin Kendall, whose approach to teaching was, um, it was ahead of its time. It was very much, here. imagine a real life situation. A lady is sitting in front of you in your surgery saying that she's got chest pain and you're going to prescribe, well, what are you going to prescribe, GTN? What are the, and he'd ask a question, what are the 10 things you're going to tell the lady about this prescription for GTN? And he used to get, he used to do these roadshows, you get what's, sort of... What's GTN? GTN is a treatment for angina. It's a spray that you put under your tongue. Um, I can give you the 10 things. It can cause headache, but it can de deal with the angina and so on and so forth. But the way he did it was he would have these roadshows. Um, we never went on the road, uh, but he put 10 students each week up on the stage and ask them a series of, of these sorts of questions. And those 10 students knew who they were going to be in advance. They sort of knew what the questions were going to be in advance, but it very much put that sort of combination of, you had to understand how drugs worked and the sort of science of it. You also had to understand how medicine works and you were also under some element of pressure because there you were with the big professor um, and you know, 200 medical students in front of you. It was a very, very good training for thinking about the decision that is a fundamental decision of medicine. Do I prescribe a treatment or don't I? And if I do prescribe a treatment, what treatment do I uh, prescribe? How do I prescribe it, etc. cetera? Um, so that's sort of, that, that was really what got me interested into clinical pharmacology. And after a few years of uh, junior doctor jobs, I went back to Birmingham, uh, in fact, as his lecturer, as his clinical lecturer. He took an enormous risk on me. I didn't have a PhD. I'd only just passed my um, membership of the Royal College Physicians, so the necessary exam to be a registrar. Um, I had no publications, no papers, no, no grants, no nothing. Um, now, he was either um, uh, 
had incredible foresight, took a huge gamble or was just desperate. But whatever way it, way it was, he, um, he took me on as his, as, his, uh, as his registrar, as his clinical lecturer, as his PhD student. And over the subsequent four and a half years or so, uh, I was able to get my specialist training so I could become a consultant in clinical pharmacology and general medicine. I was able to get a PhD from Birmingham um, and I was also able to do the sort of higher education teaching uh, qualifications that um, uh, came sort of part, as part of the, of the role. So I managed to do those things in five years um, whilst living still in West Oxfordshire with, a, with by then two children under the age of two. Um, rather, I think it's probably fair to say my wife had two children under the age of two. Um, uh, so I'm incredibly grateful to her for her support all the way through. But that really got me into, into as I say, into the further into clinical pharmacology. But I got to a point where I thought it's all about these big clinical trials. And where are those big clinical trials being done? Well, they're being done in Oxford by Rory Collins and Richard, Richard Pito, really. And some point during that sort of 10 years between going to medical school and, and, and finishing up um, uh, PhD and, 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 and so on, um, I'd increasingly started reading the results of the big clinical trials as they were coming out. There was one from the late 1980s called the ISIS-2 trial, named after the river, um, uh, which was well known as, and groundbreaking as really large, really simple, very little paperwork, and got incredibly impressive results and completely changed the face of cardiology, how we treat acute heart attack, within weeks. So what, what um, just, let's just unpack mm. it a little bit, um, how was heart attack treated previously? What was the rationale, for, what were the drugs being tested and what was the rationale sure. for testing? Sure, so, so um, prior to that, um, uh, if you go back to the 1960s, well before my time, but while, whilst my father was a GP, um, patients with a heart attack which were given bed rest at home. Come the early 1970s or so, then coronary care units started to be getting uh, established to bring these patients into hospital. But when you brought them into hospital, you didn't do much more than give them bed rest. People were often in for 10 days or a fortnight. Um, and there wasn't much in the way of drugs that you could give people. By the time it got to the mid-1980s, we hadn't advanced a whole load from there, really. But this trial said, if we uh, thin the blood with um, aspirin, everyone knows aspirin, but it has an action against the platelets, stops them clumping. And if we were to dissolve the clot, which is the cause of the heart attack, a clot forming in the, in the coronary arteries, so that blood doesn't get to a particular bit of heart muscle, if we could dissolve that clot, maybe that would actually improve your chances of survival from the acute heart attack. Now there were a lot of small trials that had been done uh, up to that point, which if you added them all together, did a meta-analysis, would say actually both of those treatments look like they're good treatments. But a collection of small trials hadn't been enough to actually convince doctors that this was the right thing to do. I'm not entirely surprised by that because these are drugs, the idea of giving to somebody a drug that dissolves blood clots together with a drug that prevents blood clots forming, that's, you know, that sort of shouts there's going to be bleeding. And sure enough, there is bleeding. So when you see as a, pa as a doctor one patient and you give them those treatments, you either see nothing happen because they get better and they, and they survive and they go home ho from hospital, in which case 
that's sort of just what you're expecting to happen. So nothing is a success in that sense. Or they have these, they can have a massive catastrophic bleed and require blood transfusion or even die from bleeding. So as a doctor seeing one patient, you don't, you can't tell the benefits because all that the benefit is is just the person continues to recover and survive. But you do see the harms, and the harms are quite nasty. So it's not a surprise that doctors weren't, to my mind, that doctors weren't entirely comfortable with giving these treatments. What Richard Peter and Roy Collins did was say, well. Okay, this looks promising. Let's do a really big trial of, I think it was 18,000 people or so, and randomize them, toss a coin between getting streptokinase or placebo, and also between getting aspirin or placebo, and do it so that some people get both, and some people get neither, and some people get one or the other. And when they did that, they found that the streptokinase, thinning the blood, uh, sorry, uh, dissolving the clot, reduced the risk of heart attack, and the aspirin, thinning the blood, reduced the risk of heart attack. And if you gave them both together, they both reduced the risk of heart attack. And you almost halved the risk of dying following an acute heart attack. And that was so clear that then practice changed within the following six months. And if you look at sales of the drugs or prescribing or whatever else, doctor surveys from about that time, this one study changed from huge uncertainty in a promising treatment that nobody was using into essentially it was definitive, almost to the point that you were considered a not very good doctor if you weren't following that evidence. So the key thing about that study was its size? It, it was size, it was randomised, this coin toss, and it was really simple to do. On yeah. the front page of the protocol, it said by far the greatest um, con uh, contributor to success of this trial will be how easy it is for frontline uh, busy doctors and nurses to actually enter their, their patients into this study. Hence the workload uh, has to be uh, uh, as absolutely minimal, the extra workload. So that had to be practical because, I mean, I was, you know, around those times, perhaps a couple of years after, I mean, I was seeing exactly those patients. Um, we were not getting much sleep. We didn't have much time. Um, uh, and the, the idea of doing these extra, uh, extra things on top, it was fine if it was, you know, one page of questions. But if it had been a book or, or whatever, it would have just never got, never got done. However, however much one was paid or shouted about it or whatever else. So the simplicity was also a really key driving point. So that trial came out as a medical student. There was a series of other studies that were somewhat like it, a bit different, over the, over the subsequent 10 years. But when I saw that paper, everybody was saying, well, look at the results. And I, yeah, the results are really impressive and they have a big effect. And you know, everybody learnt the results over and over and over again. And I've been tested on them more times than you can imagine. <laughs> um, but I looked at it and I thought, isn't it interesting that, um, and I looked at it, it's, it's, yeah, the author list said something like the John Radcliffe, care of the John Radcliffe Hospital, Oxford. And I thought, there's, some, there's, there's two or three people sitting in a porter cabin outside the John, in the car park of the John Radcliffe Hospital, who one day came to work and they said, you know what's needed is a study this big. Okay. And number two, we're going to do it. And number three, they then went on and did it. Now, I was wrong about the porter cabin. It turns out that they were in a disused x-ray room uh, in, the, in the John Radcliffe Hospital, which I think they weren't, they'd commandeered and weren't supposed to be in. But the rest of the story is pretty much, as it, uh, how I imagined it, is pretty much true. So it was the... What I suddenly got interested in was how does that actually happen? It's mm. not, yeah, the result is really impressive and the result matters. Um, but I was interested to go behind, sort of behind the scenes. It's sort of, I guess, 
there are people who see a wonderful West End performance, which is you know incredible, but they go behind the scenes and they think, I wonder how the you know the puppeteer actually works, or you know what what did the stage di- designer have in his mind when he put that together? How did the producer think I could assemble all these people and pull this off? And it was that I guess it's that sort of that sort of intrigue which got me mm. into it. So you were interested in the boxes and the barcodes and uh, the... Yeah, 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 yeah. Things. How yeah. did you, you know, you had, you know, exactly, the boxes, the barcodes, the, you know, don't ask more questions than you, than you have to and so on. So when I came to, this, we're now through to the late 90, very late 1990s, um, I was finishing off my, by this time, my clinical lectureship in Birmingham, I was finishing off my PhD in Birmingham and whatever. Um, partly because my PhD was on why people with kidney disease get heart disease, and I'd been speaking to uh, Colin Bajant, who uh, is here in Oxford, um, about that, because it was an area he had an interest in. So I sort of knew him a bit, um, but it became clear that the right thing to do um, if I wanted to pursue my interest in these really big clinical trials was go and work for the people who pretty much invented, they might not like me for saying that, but pretty much invented these sort of uh, large, sim- so-called simple randomised trials. People used to call them large and simple. Um, I think this, the aim is that the simplicity is what is how it feels on the ground. The complexity is all dealt with so that the people on the ground don't have to worry about it. Um, and that's what one really learns. I mean, again, it's like a, you know, a great theatre performance. There's huge energy and activity going on before it happens, during it, afterwards, and whatever, behind the scenes. But as the audience, all you see is the, is, 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 is the, is the, uh, the simplicity, the beauty, if you like. So, was a job advertised? Or did uh, yeah, it yeah, um, be known that you um, <laughs> fancied coming to work here? Yeah, so the job oh. was advertised. Um, actually, if, I'm just going to take the microphone off a moment, and I'm okay. going to read you a piece of paper. Uh, just because I need to get it from the other side of the room. Okay. Yeah, so I've got a piece of paper in my in my in front of me now, dated the eleventh of November nineteen ninety-nine, from Colin Bagent here in Oxford to Rory Collins and Richard Pito, re Dr. Martin Landry. Um, and it, it goes it sort of starts with an introduction. Um, and and about what my background was and so on. It said I think it would be useful to get him down to meet us when you were both around. Could I go ahead and organise a meeting in December? And underneath it is, is uh, in Richard Pito's inimitable handwriting, is OK, as long as visits doesn't get taken as a definite job offer, <laughs> RP. <laughs> <laughs> so I showed that, to, I dug that out and showed that to Richard uh, not, not, not long after I got my knighthood <laughs> last year. <laughs> <laughs> said you might not remember this. Yet, so then there was a job ad- advertised for people to, uh, to for somebody to come and play a sort of junior clinical role on one of the um, big trials, which was which Rory had been planning on cholesterol lowering the heart protection study. And so I joined for the last year of that. Um, uh, they actually, from memory, I think they interviewed four people, and they invo- they appointed to two. One was Professor Louise Bowman, who is also here. Um, and, and then me. And so we started within a month of each other. And Louise and I have worked very closely for the last 22 years or whatever it is. Um, it was a very, very good time to join the units, clinical trial service unit. Um, 
The reason for that is that the heart protection study was studying whether um, simvastatin, a statin, uh, would not only lower cholesterol but would reduce the risk of um, uh, cardiovascular disease in a whole range of different sorts of people, people who had or hadn't had a heart attack and people who had or hadn't had a stroke and so on. And in particular, perhaps one of the most important questions was, was this uh, a treatment, was lowering cholesterol something you only did to people with high cholesterol, or was it something that you could also do with people who got medium cholesterol or what we thought of at the time as low cholesterol? And when the results came out, it turned out that it didn't really matter which sort of people you took, lowering their cholesterol was a good thing to do. This, was, this study um, was in its final year uh, or so, for the like final 15 months when Louise and I joined. Um, they had a, uh, it, there's a process in clinical trials called, clinical tri called event adjudication. This is basically a form gets filled in saying, very, by the, the search nurse to the, to the participants, saying, very nice to see you. Can you tell me, have you had a heart attack since we last saw you, a stroke since we last saw you, and so on and so forth. And then on the basis of that question, if you tick a yes box, then somebody says, well, that's interesting, but that's not exactly definitive. So we now need to go and get all the hospital notes from whichever hospital this person's in, photocopy them, anonymize them and all that, send them into uh, the coordinating centers, the CTSU, and somebody needs to go through those and by standard criteria say, this meets our definition or the trial's definition of a heart attack and so on. Now by this stage, from memory, they had something like 18,000 of these uh, reports. And from memory, they hadn't done many more than 1,000. Um, and 3,000 of the people in the trial had died, so we had death certificates and all the details on that too. And I don't think they'd done any of those, and they all needed to be done in duplicate. So Louise and I were essentially appointed to clear that backlog. And um, uh, we spent uh, uh, months <laughs> and many, many hours um, going through each of those each of those reports, but what it meant was we really saw the sort of the, the fruition of, of a, a trial. We saw some of that back, backstage activity, but we saw this trial come to fruition. We then saw in November, I think it's November two thousand and one, when the results were announced, the extraordinary impact they had, um, and again, um, people put their trust in me and in us. So because the results were being announced at the American Heart Association's big annual meeting in, in front of tens of thousands of cardiologists in, in, La, in Los Angeles, this is the days when we had internet, but we certainly didn't have any sort of you know, team Zoom or any other form of sort of remote broadcasting and so on. Um, Rory and Jane Armitage and others were going to present the results in, at this meeting. Um, and they were then going to cover the US media, which including the US science and, and pharma media and so on, which was really important to get the message out. Um, Louise and I went for the sort of the weekend of you know, preparations for this um, uh, and then were told we had to come back to the UK um, to present them to the media. So the UK, the lead, leading the stories for the interviews with um, you know, Fergus Walsh and all those, uh, uh, suddenly it was, it was me and Louise up in front of the cameras announcing these incredible results to which we had contributed one year's hard work <laughs> but one year's work out of this entire story. But it's always struck me that for, you know, this had been Rory's big project at the time and for him to then say, look, actually we'll take, we'll, we'll, we'll let those two relatively junior characters 
actually front the medium and front the story and everything else uh, in the UK because we need to do the US and you couldn't in those days um, be in both places at once. It's very different than that today. Um, that was again a huge opportunity. And then people wanted to hear about the results, all the academic meetings, all those professional meetings, scientific meetings, all around the world, all sorts of societies of atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease and whatever, some of which are, you know, you, you know, are well known, some of which are less well known. There were dozens and dozens of these meetings. And um, you know, again, Rory and Jane would go and do the really important ones, quite rightly. Um, but you know, as an example, I was sent off to uh, uh, Ecuador for two, two meetings in Ecuador, Quito and uh, Guayaquil, uh, then Caracas, then Bogota, then Puerto Rico. Um, uh, you know, we did Japan. I mean, it was, but again, it was this trust that was put in us, but also the experience of how do you present what was quite complex data and distill it down into a message that the clinical audience could really, really grasp. Um, because the aim of what we do isn't to get a publication. The publication is a stepping stone along the way. It's not just to get a regulatory approval. That's a stepping stone along the way. Yes, yeah, so the FDA approves the drug or whatever, or NICE approves to pay for it or something. You've got to get it all the way through the clinical guidelines and actual frontline doctors being prepared to prescribe it, and yeah, patients being prepared to take it. Um, so you've actually got to think about all of those steps. You know, if, the, if the aim of doing a trial that says cholesterol lowering works regardless of your cholesterol if you've had a heart attack, is when you've got the answer, the, the answer is to make sure that that turns into practice. So it's a huge you know, um, learning experience at that time. Um, you know, and, and you know, I'm, I'm grateful to the opportunity I'm, uh, th that we were given. So that's taken us to I mean, we've, we, that's taken us to 2000 and so, and then from then on, um, we're into the sort of trials that gradually I was running and I was designing with Colin Bagent, with Louise, with Jane Armitage, uh, with Richard Haynes and so on over the last 20 years. Just give me a couple of examples of things yeah, that you sure. tested. We, we, we don't have time to go into no, them in no, detail. No, no. So, so I'll give you examples. So in, I'd done my PhD in why patients with kidney disease uh, get heart disease. Colin Bajant was also interested in that area. Understanding, what, yeah, sort of observing it is one thing, doing something about it is different. That needed a trial. So we did a trial of lowering cholesterol in 9,000, 9,500 people with kidney disease. It was the biggest trial in kidney disease ever done at the time, probably since. It was at least three times bigger than the next trial that was even running at the time. It was the first time that this unit had done a trial which was both international and with long term with sort of chronic daily, daily um, tablets and therapy. Um, and Colin and I designed that trial from the grounds up including thinking about actually how do you make it work? How do you make sure that the procedures that are being done in uh, a clinic in, in the southern states are the same as the procedures that are being done in Malaysia or New Zealand? And how do you get the data and so on? And a lot of that was around how do you use technology? So web, the sort of modern web where you can actually enter stuff and you can order stuff, you know, the sort of things that we, you know, we use all the time now, was only just being born at that point. Could you use that to do, do deliver trials? Um, so that was a lot of what, that was one. Another one was a trial of a, uh, a drug called niacin. It's a vitamin, a B vitamin. It's on the side of your cornflake packet uh, in small doses. Um, in big doses, you know, probably hundreds times bigger or so, in gram doses, 
um, then it lowers cholesterol. Um, and for 50 years, it's been treat considered to be a treatment for lowering cholesterol to prevent heart disease. So we did a trial, um, and we found that, it, one, it didn't lower the risk of heart disease, and two, it caused people to go into hospital more often with bleeding and infection. Nobody had known that in 50 years, um, and now niacin doesn't get used for that reason. Um, uh, so, yeah, those are two examples of these mm. big uh, cardiovascular trials, and even now we're doing some on... You know, once or twice yearly injections to lower cholesterol, um, which would be a much more convenient way for many people, uh, either in addition or instead of a statin. Um, and you know, just now we've, we're announcing results about a new treatment for people with kidney disease, which lowers their risk of heart, disease, uh, of heart attack and, and particularly uh, slows their decline in kidney function. You know, the big thing if you've got kidney disease is uh, you, know, you really want to delay or avoid dialysis. Um, and this treatment ap appears to certainly delay that. Mm. So there's been a, series, a series of these trials over the last 20 years that have been sort of the backbone of my clinical trials work. So clinical trials have, have got bigger and bigger and bigger, but they've also got more bureaucratic. And this, I, I understand you've been quite yeah. critical of some of the hurdles that you're forced to leap over by government regulation in different parts of the world. Yes. So... Um, I've just given you examples of the work and just think about them as examples of what can happen. Those trials, each of them, is roughly tenfold cheaper and, as I've indicated, often bigger, not always, uh, and just as reliable, if not more, than how industry would do them, but tenfold cheaper. Now, if, drugs, if the trial is tenfold cheaper, you can do more trials, you can include a different, greater range of, of patients, uh, and so on and so forth, you can actually uh, bring more interesting drugs through to, to that stage. Because if a trial costs you a billion dollars, an awful lot of interesting drugs get killed off even before they ever hit a patient. So the, if one looks at it in, in, in context, that ISIS-2 trial, you know, way before my time when I was a student, um, being done by Richard and Rory, was essentially two pieces of paper, one at the beginning and one at the end, um, and that was essentially all there, were, all there was to that trial. Um, if you look at many trials now, there are um, thousands, or dozens of pages of case report form, and there are hundreds of standard operating procedures and uh, uh, documentation and whatever else that goes with it, largely adding little value um, but really being driven by the rules and regulations. So in the late 1980s and through to about mid-1990s, um, a set of rules were developed called good clinical practice. Uh, the old joke goes that they're not good, they're not clinical, and they're not practical. <laughs> Unfortunately, the old joke, joke is still current. Um, so nothing much has changed in those 25 years. But they take a very rigid view of how the world works. So they were written in the days when um, uh, sort of carbon copy and a fax machine were state-of-the-art technology. So you've got a top copy and a bottom copy and they should really match. And then you send the bottom copy in the post or you fax it or something to somebody else who then types it in a machine and because they typed it into a machine somebody else has to type it into the machine to check that you've got the two answers. Um, and because you're not sure that the top copy matches the bottom copy, you send monitors out to site to check that those two things really do match. And because you're not sure that the monitors have done a good job, you send more monitors to check that the monitors have done the monitoring correctly. To t 
And so you layer and layer and layer this stuff on, which makes... Is this, sorry, is the difference between what you're saying now and what the ISIS trial did, because the drugs that we were testing in the ISIS trial, they were testing in the ISIS trial, were, ex were already approved? No, it's no, this is, the, 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 this is not about... I mean, of course, there are differences in different types of trials. A chemotherapy uh, treatment is a completely different beast to you know, studying um, antioxidant vit vitamins to see whether they prevent heart attack. They don't. We've done that one. Um, so, you, of course, you have to tailor to the clinical issues and what you know about the drug and so on. But so much of the process is just process um, and paperwork without actually really focusing on what matters. If you've got two randomised groups, which did so a bit about how trials work, um, which will be obvious to some and less obvious to others, but essentially you take a, a group, of, a large enough group of patients, and for each patient you toss a coin, heads you get the drug, tails you get something else, let's call it placebo for now. Um, and then you know that uh, come the end of the study, whatever happens to those people, the differences between those who came down heads and those who came down tails, there are two things that can have happened. One is uh, the drug caused that difference, reduced the risk of heart attack or whatever it might be, or increased the risk of going into hospital with bleeding. And the second is chance. Well, we have statistical tests to tell us whether something is likely to be purely due to the play of chance. So we can sort of deal with that issue, and that issue becomes a lot easier to deal with the bigger your study. Um, you know, if you've got very small numbers, you get imbalances purely by the play yeah, by the play of chance but if you've got very big numbers then actually that all washes out but it also tells you that um, uh, how accurate does any one data point need to be in that context so if I take 10,000 people toss a coin statin versus placebo see what happens to them if I decide that you know, if I sort of miscode or just miss the fact that one person got a heart attack in one of the arms versus the other there's probably 400 heart attacks in one arm and 300 in the other arm. Missing one heart attack is just noise in the system. Now, I've, just, I've literally just come from cardiology clinic this morning. Missing one heart attack this morning, face to face with one patient, is absolutely critical. So that's a different situation. But what, that's not what we're doing. We're not trying to diagnose heart attack when we do these trials. We're trying to assess whether the strategy of giving a statin versus not, say placebo, actually make it, makes a difference. So all that, the, the, you don't need ultimate precision in order to get an incredibly precise answer. Um, so, the, but the rules are written in ways which don't, re, don't recognise and completely misunderstand that. They want every data point to be absolutely precise. Now, if you said to me, you can have perfectly precise data, individuals, every data point is correct, and it costs you no more in terms of anything than imp slightly imprecise data, I'd say, well, yeah, precise data would be better. But if, you st if I have to now trade that off for, and now I get a smaller study, and I get a more select group of people, I only get men and I don't get women, and I don't get people from other ethnic groups and so on and so forth, I've suddenly lost a huge amount of information. Or if I only get a shorter study, because getting that precision while someone's in hospital might be feasible, but for five years afterwards might be infeasible. Or for, if you're thinking of some treatments now, you're thinking about what happens to these people in 20 years' time, it's impossible to still keep getting that level of precision all the way through. But it's not only impossible, it's unnecessary. And that's the thing. It's not a question of 
reducing the quality or reducing the standard. It's a question of actually understanding what you're trying to do. And you're trying to work out whether there's a separation between two groups of people. Who, one lot who by chance were given the statin, one lot who by chance were given placebo, and whether that has made it made a difference. And it's not re it doesn't really matter whether it's 399 versus 501 or it's 400 versus 500. It makes no difference to the, to the physician. Mm. I said earlier on that Louise and I, when we first came here, were, were employed essentially to clear that backlog of clinical trial adjudication. These piles and piles of documents that had to be coded as to, yes, they definitely had a heart attack or didn't, according to some criteria. After we'd been through that and after we presented the results and it had a big impact all around the world and so on and prescribing patterns changed and everybody now knew what a statin was, which they didn't at the time, um, that was a comms issue. Um, after we'd done, done all that, we went back and we looked and said, what if Louise and Martin hadn't done all that work? What if we'd just taken the patient's report when the, when the nurse said, tell me, have you had a heart attack since I last saw you? If they said yes, we believed it was yes. And if we said no, we believed it's no. We got almost precisely the same answer. <laughs> we were out by uh, the second or third decimal point on the risk ratio, the confidence interval, the p-value, whatever. So statistically, we got essentially the same answer. Regulatory-wise, in terms of would give somebody give it a label, you know, give it a, uh, an indication, we allowed it to be prescribed, we got the same answer. Clinically, we got the same answer. If we'd just taken the patient's words, which are not precise, you know, the, um, it's not a precise diagnosis, we'd have got the same answer, we'd have known that statins worked. For substantially less cost, uh, much quicker, and because of that, we could have done the study even bigger or even more diverse or even longer or even better in a variety of ways because now scale becomes, pro becomes possible. When you say, well, a big study is just like a tiny study, only you do it exactly the same things many, many more times over, that becomes uh, infeasible and therefore you actually miss information. So if you think of it from a regulator's point of view, I'm not a regulator, I've worked with lots, then their job really is not to regulate trials, they need to do some of that because there are, you know, the trials need to do a job, but their job really is to improve the health of the nation. So they need better evidence to allow them to make better decisions about whether to license a drug or not. So actually what they want is trials that give them better evidence, not trials that fill some sort of slightly um, uh, you know, obsessive version of what the truth might be. If I wind that, all that story forwards and say you look at, look at today, well, there's healthcare information all around us. The NHS Digital collects information on um, every hospital admission, every diagnosis, every operation and all that for business planning reasons and reimbursement reasons and all those sorts of things. And with the right consents, the right ethical permissions and all those other things in place, um, which is a non-trivial undertaking, um, with those things in place, you can, use tr you can do trials where you randomise patients to a treatment versus not, and you can link through to those data, and you can use all those routine data that are already out there. They're being collected for free. Where do they come from? Well, they came from somebody typing in the answers from the clinical notes which were written when each patient was in hospital. And you can use that, and again, you'll find that there's a little bit of mismatch between that and whichever page of the, of the hospital notes you look at, 
believe me, different pages will have different, different pieces of information on them, some of them contradictory. Um, but they won't be exactly the, the data and, uh, in NHS Digital and the paper records won't be exactly aligned. But if you, do, you, if you link through the NHS Digital data, you will get exactly the same answers as if you'd looked at the, at the routine data. But again, you can do it bigger. You can do it when patients move around the country and they move away from my hospital into some, somewhere else. When they're never seen in hospital again, you know, there's a huge difference between um, uh, somebody, nothing has happened to, to somebody, and we have no idea whether something has happened to anybody, because both of those look like sort of missing pieces of information. Um, and we can do it for much, for much longer. So again, that sort of is bringing us forward to, we can use, we don't have to be absolutely precise in order to get a very precise answer, and actually a better answer and a more useful answer in more contexts and in more ways than one would have done if one only done it mechanically. And yeah, we have done child, we have done studies where we've said, what happens if you just do it the old fashioned way? You know, have you had a heart attack since I last saw you? Or we go to NHS Digital and say, tell me whether any of these people have had a heart attack with the right permissions. And they give you exactly the same answer. So, um, but the rules are not written in that way. They don't emphasize the principles they emphasise the operational details. And the way the world works today is so different from 1995. How we talk to each other, how we communicate, um, you know, uh, the, the smartphones and the, and the like, how data is collected and managed, the relationships between patients and, their, and, their, and, and, the, and the medical profession is wildly different. And if you think about where most patients spend most of their time, it's thankfully nowhere near any doctor. Even long-term diseases like diabetes, most people with diabetes spend most of their time, if you like, out in the wild, living their everyday life, doing whatever they do, without having to go into hospitals, without going to their GP or to diabetes clinics. Of course, they come to those periodically. So these, there are new opportunities to actually bring trials to the patient rather than making the, you know, trying to insist that the patient somehow comes to this magical clinical trial site, but they're only possible if the rules are based on principles. And the principles are so easy. Number one, get a reliable result. But actually, I'll, I'll recap. Number one, ask a question that you care about the answer. Number two, answer it. In the meantime, uh, you need to make sure you look after the rights and well-being of the patients who are in the trial. So in a sense, think about it as you've got to look after the people who are in the trial, and you've got to look after the results because they will, one way or another, influence many, many more people who are not in the trial. Um, I would add to those rules and say, we need actually doing things efficiently is actually, you know, we should be dr uh, driving to avoid wastage because we can't afford wastage. If costs go up, we do less trials, we get less evidence, we do worse medicine. Doing things in a way that does involve the communities that people come from, that's both the clinical communities that people come from and the the communities that patients and come from and of course many people don't think of themselves as patients most of the time think about vaccines most people are vaccinated there's sort of nothing wrong with them um, they're va being vaccinated to stop something that might happen um, either in the short term or in the long term um, so i think there are many ways in which we could have much better rules which actually um, explain what the principles are explain what we're trying to achieve you know what does good look like but then allow people to if you like innovate and find solutions that are fit for the, for the particular context. Which is what you needed to do. 
which is what when I need you, to do for COVID. When you, when you were doing yes. COVID. So we really need to yeah. get on to COVID, I think, by now. What, how are we doing? Right, OK. Um, so uh, can you remember, um, I know you can because I've heard the story before, but let's tell it again, how you first heard about um, that there was something going on in China that looked as if it might get serious, and, and how long did it take you before you realised this was something actually you were going to have to get involved with? Well, I do remember seeing those some very early... I guess tweets or whatever from Jeremy Farrer and a few others in early January of that year along the lines of, yeah, this doesn't look good. Um, I'm a cardiovascular doctor, uh, I don't do infectious disease, um, uh, I don't do uh, overseas in, you know, emerging outbreaks, um, you know, SARS and MERS and all those things are, there are other people who do those and do them very well, so it wasn't my area. And so it was sort of, if you like, mentally a problem for somebody else to sort out that wasn't, didn't have a direct impact on me. Of course, as we all knew, so I was in the same position probably as most other people in the UK or, or elsewhere. Of course, we saw it then move to Iran and then to Northern Italy. And by the time I got to Northern Italy, it was beginning to feel a little bit close to home. Yeah, not least because those two countries are not obviously connected. So you're suddenly seeing this thing this is, an, this is entirely amateur, this, from, from my perspective. You're seeing this thing pop up, clearly spread, um, in a number of different places. So this, was, this isn't just like it's sort of you know, gradually migrating down the corridor. It's actually, yeah, uh, it's clearly getting on jet planes. Um, it, was in, it was as things in February started to yeah, sort of really become more obvious, again, in, in northern Italy. And... Late February, um, 28th of February, I was on a train on the way back from um, uh, somewhere in the north of England where I'd been, uh, had a meeting with NHS Digital about clinical trials and data and all this stuff. Um, and um, uh, I was emailing Jeremy Farrer. Um, I was doing work with him at the time, about, or for him, about clinical trials and their guidelines. I emailed Jeremy Farrer and said, um, at the bottom, it was almost as a PS, at, so, at some point, is anybody, is anybody thinking about randomization? I said, at some point, people are going to start wanting to throw treatments and vaccines and whatever at people. And we really need to know if they, if they work or they don't. And if we don't randomize, we'll never find out. And that, would be, that, that could be a disaster. And I also said, look, it's exactly at the time when you, there are no treatments, there, it's a widespread disease with a bad outcome is exactly the time when randomization is the right way forwards. Um, uh, uh, and also, it's a time when regulators and others are, prefer, are, are prepared to do some innovation, because they have to. Um, I wasn't sure that I ever get a response, but I got one about five minutes later saying, speak to Peter Horby and, um, and Richard Peter. So the following um, uh, week, so something like the 4th of March or so, Peter and I met with Richard Peter in Richard's office. Was that the first time you'd met Peter? Um, I'd had, I've, I'd had a, about, in total, about 20 minutes of discussion split over about three conversations on the telephone and had met him once up to that point over the last couple of, couple of years. That was, that was, that was the uh, limit of, uh, of, our, uh, of our knowledge of each other. Um, uh, so we met in, in, in Richard's office and started talking about what a trial should look like. Um, over the next four or five days, so that took us over the weekend, it wasn't clear WHO were trying to do something, I mean, they obviously did in the end, but they were trying to do something, uh, should the UK be in with that, 
and so on and so forth. And then it got, and it, then it got to, and I was asked, you know, could we provide an IT system for the trial because you've got to have some data collection. Um, so I did a little bit of discuss, talking around various people in the, in the department about how we might go about that. Come the Monday, um, uh, I was on the famous number 18 bus um, with Jeremy going, heading between Marlebone and, and, and the Wellcome Trust, so a 10 minute journey. And the stories of the horrors uh, were happening in Northern Italy were uh, all over the serious newspapers. The stories of what the tabloids considered to be the horror, horrors of running out of lavatory roll were all over the front <laughs> of the red tops. Seriously, that, 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 those were the news stories of the day. Um, uh, and Jeremy and I had also had heard you know, sort of from um, colleagues in Northern Italy and so on just how horrendous it was, people being taken off ventilators, not put on ventilators having refrigerated lorries in the, in the hospital car parks because they didn't have enough space in the mortuary, all this sort of thing. I mean, really sounded, it, it was horrendous. And Jeremy said, look, I think London's going to be like this in two weeks. It's coming here. And this, we were on a crowded bus. Um, uh, and uh, he asked me about you know, what, what the discussion with the trial. He said, look, we've got to get this going up and running within two weeks. And we agreed that in the 10 minutes bus ride. And I got to uh, welcome. Um, uh, and the, fir the first call I made actually was to, to, to Rory Collins as head of department. I said, look, we've, you know, we've talked about the IT, I've spoken to Richard and whatever else, but I really think we've either actually got to go completely in this or stand back. There's, you know, there's no point being half and half. And I said, and my judgment is we should just go for this um, because I don't think anybody else will you know, be able to deliver. Um, uh, and I said, um, oh, and by the way, there isn't any money. So at that point, I said, "Look, I I think, you know, having spoke to Jeremy, given the situation, I think we should go for this. Um, this is you know, it's Rory's department, not mine, but I think we should um, uh, sort of essentially underwrite this." Um, I said, "I'm pretty confident that if we, you know, if, if we get going, the money will follow at some point." I just can't tell you today, I've got the grants and I've got the money and you know, we're going to have to do this in a different order, we haven't got time. And he agreed. Um, now it turned out on money, to answer your question on money, um, that Peter had put in for grants to study um, treatments for Covid in China. Way back in the February, he put in a grant to NHR. It had taken NHR four, six weeks or whatever it was to churn this through, by which time there wasn't any Covid in China because of the, the lockdown had worked very, that first lockdown worked very well. And so they said, yes, you can have the money, um, but you must study it, you must do it in the UK. Um, and so actually the grant did come through for a, di for, for a slightly different route. Um, but yeah, we were prepared to do this um, uh, you know, at, at risk. We had to move at risk, and that was what was obvious to me. Um, and so, yeah, on the 9th and 10th of of um, that March, we wrote the protocol. I had a copy of the ISIS-2 protocol, this large simple trial, on my desk. I had a copy uh, of a paper Richard and uh, Rory and Salim Youssef had written from 1984, which says why we need some large simple trials. It was all about heart disease, but if you substitute the word heart disease for COVID, everything else slotted into place. Um, and uh, I looked at one of my usual protocols for one of my usual cardiovascular five-year trials and I thought, that's not the way to do it. We've got to do it simply because um, this, is going, this is going to be really difficult at the coalface. And the, the trick is absolutely going to be, can we minimise 
the additional effort for the frontline staff, otherwise it will never happen. And number two, the second trick is we've got to get it in now before the NHS works out um, its sort of standard protocols or whatever, who gets assessed in A&E, how do they get triaged, what treatments do they get, all that sort of thing. We had to get it in so that doing the trial was part of just what they did in this, in this context. Um, so I suppose the, the big question is, how did you know what drugs to try? So that this was this yes. is a trial of treatments. It's not to do with prevention. This is to do with this is to do treating treatments. sick people. So, why did, so one, one question is, why did we choose this particular context? I mean, we could have done a trial of prevention. We could have done a trial of um, in doctors and nurses who are looking after patients with COVID. They're at high risk of getting it. That's another version of prevention. We could have done a trial in the community to prevent people getting into hospital. Um, but... It seemed to me that the number one problem we were facing and that Italy was facing was there were a lot of people dying. The hospitals were overwhelmed and there were a lot of people dying and a lot of people needing ventilators. And so, you know, when the house is on fire, the first thing you try to do is put out the house, uh, put out the fire. And, um, you know, of course you want to do prevention and all those other things. And, they, they, yeah, and that's where in particular the vaccines come in. But we never knew whether we were ever going to get a vaccine, let alone when. Um, so it seemed to me that the, the major challenge was we've got patients who are declaring themselves sick because they're sick enough to get into hospital. So diagnosis isn't a problem. And we know what the outcome is. One in three, one in four were dying. You've got to do something about that before you do anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where, that's where we focused. Mm. On the treatment side, we had some help. WHO had done some shortlisting of drugs. They come up with, I say shortlisting, they prioritised, but they, the list was 100 drugs long or something. Um, uh, nerve tag, which Peter was on, had also done sign prioritisation. Um, uh, and with, particularly with regards to dexamethasone, there had been a, uh, a trial sort of protocol in case of pandemic flu, which had been a trial or was going to be a trial of steroids. So what's the argument for using steroids in an infectious... Well, the ar argument for, use, for using them is that um, uh, the inflammatory response to the virus is so it, it becomes so great that the inflammatory response itself starts to cause damage. So you start to get secretions and so on, and then you don't get good gas exchange in the lungs, and then you become hypoxic, and then you need a ventilator and so on. The argument against using them is that steroids suppress the immune system uh, at a time when you're trying to fight an infection for which there are no other treatments. Um, it seemed to me that if you don't know what you're doing, you're best off randomising and finding out. Finding out. Um, uh, there were others, it has to be said, who had very strong views in, uh, in one direction or another. And in fact, once we got the dexamethasone up and running, there were a group of uh, uh, eminent professors in London um, who wrote to the MHRA, the chief medical officer, us and various others, saying, you shouldn't even be studying steroids, you shouldn't be studying dexamethasone because it is dangerous to suppress the immune system in people fighting infection. We had to, by that time, argue very strongly with the MHRA that actually nobody knew we needed to find out and this was the quickest way of finding out. Um, I'm glad we did. Um, so yes, we started with hydroxychloroquine, that was an easy choice. Um, it, it was everywhere, everybody was saying it was wonderful. Well, that's a malaria drug, so why would anybody think that might well, be? Well, so it's a malaria drug and a rheumatology drug, but in the laboratory, um, uh, if, you, if, you, if you put hydroxychloroquine on, on infected cell, uh, cells with almost any virus, um, uh, then they look unhappy. So it's in, in the laboratory, for a whole range of viruses, um, hydroxychloroquine has been touted as an antiviral. 
Um, no one's ever yet found a viral disease for which it's useful, to the best of my knowledge. Um, Peter's more the expert on, on the choice of drugs than, than me. Um, but, um, you know, there were, and then there was a paper that had come out in The Lancet, a series of about 15 or 18 people who'd been given hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin and antibiotic. Um, uh, and this was proclaimed as wonderful treatment. Now, actually in that paper, half the data was missing. It was too small and it wasn't randomized. I mean, it, wasn't, it, it was a, a really poor paper. Um, uh, and actually the world was dominated by some pretty poor papers in those early days, probably ever since. Um, so, you know, and, you know, Trump was claiming that this was a miracle cure. Um, the French were, you know, very minded to use it. Uh, um, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil was saying this is a must treatment. It happened in India. It happened all over the world, people were using it. The UK had a stockpile of it. Um, uh, and the question was, should they use it? And we, we said to them, no, the thing to do is randomise. Let's randomise and find out quickly whether it's the right thing to do or not. Otherwise, if you use it, you'll run out at some point and you never know whether you need more or actually you didn't need to use any at all. That had happened with a drug called tocilizumab in, in Italy. They'd used so much of it that they had run out that they couldn't even use it for, or were running low for treating people with rheumatoid arthritis, which is where it's normally used. And at the end of having burnt through quite a lot of money, but also this huge stockpile of, 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 of um, tocilizumab, they had no idea whether they needed to buy more or, or whether they'd just wasted a whole load of drug. We said, look, randomise, randomise, randomise all the way through. Make randomisation part of your public health strategy. Um, you do R&D, you see, like on the fly while you're, while, whilst you're um, fighting the pandemic, you won't regret it, um, actually learning which ones work and which ones don't. Um, and that was an argument we had to keep banging on about over and over again, still do. Um, as well as people who thought dexamethasone was dangerous, there were presumably some who thought, well, if you think it works, we should just give it to everybody. There were some. It was, it was, it was less, the lobby in favour of, oh, just give them the drug, it can't do anything, was, was very strongly a sort of hydroxychloroquine thing. Right. Less strongly a dexamethasone right. thing, I would say, although some uh, believe. When we set up the trial, we said, well, if you have a really big belief that this particular patient needs dexamethasone or mustn't have dexamethasone, then don't randomise them into that bit of the trial, randomise them into the rest, but don't randomise them back bit of the trial. It's not the right thing to do. Um, but most people, most of the time, thought, well, I don't, we don't actually know what we're doing. Um, one of the wonderful things, though, that's, I've rephrased, that's the wrong phrase. One of the unusual things about COVID was it was perfectly legitimate for doctors to say, we don't know what we're doing, we don't know how to treat this. That's very unusual. In my field of cardiology, uh, of all the international guidelines published by the American Heart Association, European Society of Cardiology and so on, if you look at all those guidelines, Rob Califf, who is now FDA Commissioner a few years ago, did a review of all those guidelines and says which of these are based on good evidence from randomised trials. 15% were based on good evidence from randomised trials, 85% were not. Now a few of those things that are not were things like, you know, is smoking, uh, you know, is smoking harmful for the heart? You don't do randomised trials of that, doesn't need a randomised trial and so on. So it's a bit extreme, but the point is that even in an evidence-based specialty like cardiology, which is probably at the top of the tree along with some types of cancer, huge amounts of treatment decisions are based on we sort of don't know. We don't, you know, we've got 
experimental evidence, theoretical evidence, some experience, whatever. But bottom line, we don't actually know. Think about the niacin example I gave earlier. Seems it lowers cholesterol, it's a vitamin, it's been around 50 years, nobody's ever noticed it causing anything other than flushing. Um, why not? Whereas it turns out it's actually makes people go into, or causes people to go into hospital with infect, nasty infection and, and bleeding. So this assumption that um, uh, we know what we're doing is, is sort of um, touching but misplaced in some ways. I don't want to put patients off. Um, in COVID, it was perfectly legitimate to say, we just don't know what the right treatments are. Yeah. There are no trials. We don't know what we're doing. Um, so how did you go about recruiting the patients for the trial? Well, so, 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 so just in, in, in brief the early bit, because it has been sort of talked about on a, on a number four or before. Um, number one, we had to get the trial up and running as quickly as possible. That took us nine days, um, which as opposed to normally nine months, 18 months. Uh, my first worry was how do we get started? My, sec my second worry was how do we get it into every hospital, or as many hospitals as we can. I thought initially if we could get into 60 hospitals, we'd be doing well. But when we set up trials here, it can take us, you know, we might do, I don't know what it is, five or 10 hospitals a month if we're lucky or something. It takes a long time working around hospital by hospital, getting the paperwork sorted out and all the rest and making sure you've sent those little barcodes and labels to the right address and all those other things. And I thought we haven't got that long. Um, uh, and Lucy Fletcher, who's an experienced trial manager from here, and, and others in, in her team, did a wonderful job. They got every hospital in the country set up within about, within about eight weeks. So we, but within, within four weeks, we had three quarters of those hospitals already set up, um, including many, many hospitals. Well, they are every hospital, but you know, many of those hospitals have never done clinical trials, never done these sorts of clinical trials before. Um, uh, and of course, those hospitals are in diverse parts of the country. And yeah. did you have to sort of go up to get authority to go down to the hospitals? Yeah, well, you have, to, you have to get ethics approval yes. and MHRA's regulatory approval and so on and so forth. So we did, ha we got a letter from the chief, me or got yeah. the chief medical officer and the director of, um, so the chief medical officers for each um, bit of the UK, so, right. uh, so yeah. each nation plus the medical director of the NHS um, to write a letter which basically said that the trial is to be deemed as part of standard of care, not an optional extra on, on the side, and we strongly encourage you to take part. And that letter was extraordinarily useful. So it is... Was that easy to get? Was that, that yeah, uh, Yes, I mean, I, I, would say, I would say yes in that, in that circumstance. I mean, it takes some takes some effort, it takes some persu persuasion, you've got to put your case and whatever else. Um, but yes, it, the, I, I think it was, and that letter mattered a lot um, because suddenly this was now part of the day job. Um, at a time when hospitals were working out how the hell they were going to cope with an unprecedented crisis, how they were going to deal with staff numbers, how they were going to do with wards, how they're going to get more ITU beds, all that, you know, were they going to contribute to the Nightingale ward, um, hospitals? all that stuff as well, that letter was very, very helpful. Um, so that was a big part of it. We had to train you know, the doctors who were in these hospitals. So we did all the training online with short 10 minute videos um, for different bits. So if you want to take consent, you look at this bit. If you want to fill in this form, you look at that bit and so on. We made the trial open to as many staff as we could. We realized that 
you couldn't just have one Wernberg staff who was the only person in the hospital trained to do the trial. We had to make sure that you know, the frontline doctors, who were junior doctors, many of them, that they could also take part in the trial. When we ended up with nigh on 10,000 doctors, nurses, pharmacists, um, you know, back, back office R&D staff, whatever, all who have contributed in some way to the trial. Um, uh, they're all listed in the in the authorship list in, in the in the appendix to all the papers. Um, we this had to make. Sound like a silly question, but did you need an NHS to do that? If we hadn't had the NHS, would it have been possible? It doesn't sound like a stupid question. It sounds like a question I'm very often asked asked from uh, friends in the United States. The NH, the NHS helps enormously. Um, uh, having data helps enormously. Um, but it would be possible. I think it would be possible to do this same mechanism. Uh, if you didn't actually have a whole NHS and if you didn't actually have the data that we have. Um, if you look at in the United States, for example, Kaiser Permanente uh, is one of their big health insurance systems uh, uh, out there. And I can't remember exactly how many patients they have, but I think it's probably more than the size of Scotland. You know, it's, you know, it's a vast number. Um, and there's no reason why this sort of clinical trial couldn't have been done within one of those sort of healthcare systems. And in fact, actually, um, yeah, throughout the last few years, I've had many conversations with, with leaders in the US about why they couldn't do, why they didn't do it, why they couldn't do it, and how can they copy it now. In fact, even just this week, Rob Califf and two other senior leaders from FDA have written a, um, uh, an opinion piece in JAMA exactly about um, the US needs to learn from recovery um, for clinical trials, what they call it at the point of care, in other words, at the front line. Oh, I think that's the first time we mentioned recovery. So this trial was called Recovery, yes. which stood for? Randomised Evaluation of COVID Therapies, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Peter came up with the acronym. You need it on any trials team, you have to have somebody who can, who can think of the name, and that's never me. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I think we've done consensus um, about testing existing drugs and we've done funding, we've done that, um, and we've done that. So, yes, um, so where do you get the drugs from? So, um, for drugs like dexamethasone and hydroxychloroquine, the NHS has them anyway. So what we said was, you know, you might prescribe these anyway, so rather than prescribe them, randomise, and, and they would, if you like, from regular NHS stock. For some of the drugs, so tocilizumab was donated by Roche. Um, uh, this was sort of six weeks or so into the study when the study was going well. Um, they, and um, I think that was a very good relationship. And I think it's actually a, a sort of model that one would want to copy. It's not a question of, oh, this is an industry trial or this is an academic trial. This is a, is a genuine collaboration. We have all, we're, Oxford University is the sponsor of the trial. That's a sort of regulatory term, responsible for the trial um, under all the rules. Um, we're studying lots of drugs, um, but Roche have a drug that looked interesting, was recommend, recommended as sort of prioritised as worthy of study. They gave it to us. Um, they didn't give us any money, that's fine, that, um, and we put it, plugged it into the trial. We do the trial, we produce, produce the data, we publish the data, we you know, talk to the regulators and others and health policy people and so on, and whoever wants to know to explain the data. But we also return it back to Roche. And then Roche uh, are able to use it for their own internal purposes, develop new treatments, whatever they want to do. But they're also able to use it 
to apply to regulators for a, an extension to the drug license. So it's not just for rheumatology, it's now for COVID as well. And that's fine. Actually, it's a very good, if you like, independent test of a particular treatment that happens to become, come from industry. All treatments come from industry, ultimately. And the second one was, the, was Regeneron. There was a second big example was Regeneron, who donated um, uh, antibodies, monoclonal antibodies that stick on the virus. And nobody knew whether they would work by the time you get to hospital. Um, it's interesting, the thoughts about what the disease had changed by this point. This is, a, what, six months in or something. Because of the dexamethasone result, everybody said, oh, no, it's an inflammatory disease. You don't need antiviral treatments. The virus isn't relevant. So they've completely switched their minds. Um, so yeah, would, would these antibodies work in patients in, in hospital? So they also gave us the drug. Um, why the Regeneron one versus whatever other ones were about, well, it was uh, the vaccines task force led by Kate Bingham, who actually were charged with doing the sort of prioritization and, and selection of which of the many antibodies were to be used. Um, why they came under vaccines versus something else, I have no idea, but they did a very good job at um, you know, considering the different uh, treatments that are available. There's obviously things you've got to think about, like, you know, does it actually stick to the version of the virus that's going around at the moment? But also, how, how, how many people has it been used in so far? And how much stock actually is there? Because you know, if there's only enough for a few hundred people, well, that's no good to anybody. Um, uh, and yeah, more recently, other, other companies have done uh, similar. So um, GSK, for example, have given us uh, citrovimab, which is another antibody uh, which we're studying at the moment. So we, we slightly skipped over the, the results. Let's go back to that. So you got the whole thing up and running really quickly. Uh, when did you first have something that you could report? Well, the first results uh, came out in um, uh, in June of that year. So within, so I said nine days to get the first patient in. In uh, less than a hundred days, we had twelve thousand patients, um, uh, and the first two results. And the first one to, to raise its head was hydroxychloroquine. Um, uh, which it was quite clear, the DMC told, uh, told us we should look at the data, it was quite clear that um, this was a treatment that didn't have any, benefit, any chance of benefits. It might even be uh, harmful, but it certainly had no benefits. Um, uh, we announced that in, I think it was something like the 6th of June. Um, uh, that had the impact that I expected. Number one, and, and uh, well, first of all it had the hope, impact I hoped for, which is that hydroxychloroquine largely stopped being used not only in the UK but around the world not exclusively some people carried on they, they would do but uh, and number two the, the uh, predictable um, uh, backlash um, which is there are a number of people who are or have been very very strong hydroxychloroquine uh, advocates um, it's interesting that people hold on to almost beliefs if you like uh, and some treatments just get a sort of a, a momentum behind them uh, as if by sheer willpower a drug can suddenly kill a virus and be good for patients. All the drugs we've studied I've hoped they work. I've had reason to think that they might work but then you do the test, you do the trial to find out whether they actually work, how well they work and in whom they work and this one doesn't work. That's the result. Um, it's a good trial, it got a clear result. Uh, a promising drug is not is not a it turns out not to be a useful drug that's the end that's the end of that story but it didn't stop some fairly vociferous um, 
uh, uh, comment and feedback from some quarters. As I say, from you know, from ninety odd percent of it, it was yeah, a lot of people were extremely grateful to actually know the answer to what was an, you know, an important question. And then the second one was the dexamethasone, which we you know, Peter and I knew pretty much at the same time, um, you know, within a few days or whatever, what the result was. But we then, because of that result, we then had to spend a week really making sure that we got it right. You know, when we first looked at the data, here was a result that had a very clear clinically and statistically significant reduction in mortality for, pe for the sickest people, people on ventilators and people on um, oxygen. Um, and at that stage, no treatments available, no vaccine in, in sight. Um, uh, we were still in the first lockdown here in the UK. Other parts of the world were really struggling. We didn't know quite how bad Africa was going to get um, uh, and so on and so forth. And so we had this result for a drug that cost five pounds, even less in some parts of the world, is on the essential medicines list, is in every pharmacy, in pretty much every hospital in the world. Um, and we have this result that says it saves lives. And you know that the moment you open your mouth, the world changes. So we did have to spend a week really digging into the data and making absolutely certain that, the, that we understood the data, that we got the data right, we got the messages right, we knew what, what um, we, we, yeah, we had to make sure that we got it straight. And then on the 16th of June, we announced it at, at the lunchtime on a press conference through the Science Media Centre. Um, we wanted to make sure that this got out as a science and health story first, not a political story. Um, we were asked if we would, we would say it first at, um, uh, at uh, 10 Downing Street, and we said, well, we're happy to come to 10 Downing Street, um, but we're going to announce it to the science media first, um, because we really wanted to make sure that we got you know, doctors need to know the, sci the science story, they need to know the clinical story, they need to know the data. Um, uh, that's much more important than, uh, than the sort of the politics and whatever else. So yeah, we announced it at lunchtime. Um, uh, by the time uh, it was then, uh, we got it, 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 another invite from number 10 saying, please come to the daily briefing. We said, there's two of us. Um, they said, well, we can only take one. So um, I'd been to number 10 once before for something completely uh, unrelated and low key. Peter hadn't, so we decided we'd send Peter in my tie. Um, and so um, one of the artifacts that, that is going to go in is, is, my, is my tie, which, <laughs> which, which has also since appeared at Buckingham Palace three times when Peter went to get his knighthood, when I went to get my knighthood, and when Richard Haynes went to get his MBE. So um, um, this tie? Uh, not, not the one I'm wearing right now, no. It, it's, it's too precious these days. <laughs> it doesn't come out. Um, so. Um, uh, yeah, so Peter, you know, announced the results again with with uh, uh, Boris Johnson, um, uh, you know, in those, one of those five o'clock briefings. By the time he did so, the NHS had issued a, uh, uh, um, a statement to every hospital saying dexamethasone is now to be considered standard of care um, in uh, patients who are on oxygen or on ventilators. So nine days to get the study started, less than a hundred days to get the res first results three hours to get it into policy um, uh, and that isn't just chance that's part of the when you ask a good question you want to answer it robustly you want to answer it in a way that will change practice that will change the world if you like 
It's a very, it's a very unique set of circumstances. Um, but that was always our object objective, was to get an answer that it was just clear-cut what you should do. We did that with hydroxychloroquine and we did that with steroids. Um, and over the subsequent you know, few weeks, um, WHO, NIH, FDA, EMA, all these other people all you know, accepted the results and it was, it, it, it was adopted um, very rapidly. And is there an, an estimate of how many people's lives might well, have been yeah. as a result? At the time the estimate came out, which was the following March, I wasn't terribly comfortable with it, but I think it must be true by now, which is that at least a million lives worldwide have been saved as a consequence. Um, uh, impossible to know, you know, because you can't count, you, 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 you can't count how many people um, nothing happened to, if you like, they survived. Um, but I think that's a, that's a, a reasonable estimate. Um, we've had three further treatments, tocilizumab, um, the Regeneron antibody in people who don't already have their own antibodies and um, baricitinib and other arthritis drugs since then. So we've, we've overall we've studied, included 48,000 people to date. Um, uh, we've uh, got, I think it's 10 or possibly 11 results by now, four clear treatments that can be used in the sickest patients in particular circumstances, six others that shouldn't be used, but that's good to know. Um, uh, and yeah, have changed the way people have thought about trials. The feedback from frontline doctors, frontline patients has been um, remarkable. Um, in, for the doctors, this was at last, their ch many of whom had never done trials before, this was their chance to help generate an answer, find a solution to this crisis, rather than merely having to sort of suffer and struggle their way through it. Um, we had hospitals, you, you know, as I say, who've never done trials before, somewhere in South Tees, you know, nearly a thousand patients in one hospital. That one hospital put almost as many patients into recovery trial as entire trials are in the United States. Um, and one of the lessons has been in the United States is, uh, and this is a sort of analysis by Janet Woodcock, who was acting chief commissioner at the, of the FDA at the time, is now um, chief deputy commissioner. Um, she did analysis in, on all the registered trials, uh, um, uh, registries of, of cl ongoing clinical trials. There's something like 2,700, 2,800 clinical trials of COVID. And she went through them and 95% of them, in her view, never had a chance of answering their question. They were either not randomised or they were too small. And that, I think, is a lesson in that we don't need lots and lots more trials. We need more, better trials. Um, and you have to ask yourself, what the, you know, why has that come about? And in, in large part, that's because the academic credit for leading a trial that never produces an answer is substantially greater than the academic credit for contributing a very small part to a trial that changes the answer. Put it very crudely, if you think that recovery may have saved a million lives, and I told you a little earlier that there might be 10,000 NHS staff of one sort or another who've contributed in one way or another, big or small or whatever, and you divide one number by the other number, that's the contribution, the average contribution in terms of lives saved of each of those people. And you compare that with those 95% of 2,700 trials, whatever it is, so well over 2,000 trials, where people have played a leading role in something that never, that either has never got anywhere or never had a hope of getting anywhere. And I think we have to think about in academia, in our reward structures and so on, we have to think very, very differently. 
Peter and I have always been very clear. Peter and I have got lots of credit, um, lots of accolades, um, lots of attention, if you like. Not all of it good, but we've had, you know, and we are sort of the front men for the recovery trial. But the contribution of um, so many people has been, is, what, is what's made it possible. So 48,000 patients who've taken part in the trial in really difficult circumstances for them. 10,000 doctors and nurses who were completely overwhelmed emotionally, time pressure, everything else. And then, you know, I don't know what it is, 50 people or something probably here in, in Oxford in the clinical trials unit over time, probably 25 at any one time, who've contributed. Um, you know, it's a much bigger and broader teamwork than just, you know, Horby and Landro. Again, if I think about it purely from sort of Oxford University or an academic perspective, I think that this would have, I know that this would have been impossible, impossible without the 20 years of experience of working out how to do clinical trials. Number one, actually understanding the fundamental principles. There wasn't a protocol, a standard operating procedure, whatever, that could prepare anybody for trying to do a trial in the middle of a pandemic. You had to understand the, the, the basic principles um, of good design, of good ethics, and so on and so forth, in order to work out how you designed a trial that uh, would not only answer the question, but also that anybody could take part in. Um, same's true across all the sort of technical elements. So the sorts of people who built a computer system for the trial in nine days have been here for, I'm guessing, 20 years or so. Long-term sustainable funding. The people who were the trial managers, uh, the people who were the uh, data managers managing data, shuttling backwards and forwards between different computers here or with NHS Digital or whatever else. All of these different types of people, the people who test the computers, those long-term, that long-term experience um, of technical staff is fundamental. I think that there's, a, there's something that we all have to reflect on, which is actually how do we ensure that these people are sustained, their careers are rewarding, that we can retain them. And you know, a, a significant chunk of that is you know, a threat in terms of salaries, in my view. Um, you know, academia, academic salaries are not the same as industry salaries. Those technical people are not on uh, an academic pathway. If I interviewed one, any one of those for a new job, um, uh, I wouldn't be interested in how many papers they published, how many students they supervised, or how much grants they got come in, coming in. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't want them to do any of those things. Number one, they're probably not very good at them. Number two, I want them to do the things they are really good at, which is programming computers, managing data, uh, sorting out ethics applications, and all those sorts of things. So I think one of the things that was, has, was so true of recovery was in, on the 9th and 10th of March, I had a series of phone calls where I'd ring people up and I'd say, COVID's coming, we've got this trial, um, I really could think could do with some help. Do you think you could do your bit? Oh, and by the way, I need an answer by the end of this conversation. <laughs> I don't mind whether it's yes or no, I really don't mind, but the time pressure is such that I need to know. And they all said yes. Um, but it was because those people were there uh, and able to help. Now, of course, other things, it wasn't a question of dropping other stuff. Other stuff was being dropped because nothing else much was going to be happening. 
Um, so that's a slightly different scenario, but the reality is that those people were here with their experience and their, and, and, and their expertise. And so I think as we're looking ahead, we have to think about uh, as a university, and it's not just Oxford University, it's true for, for across academia, how does one get that sustained um, long-term investment in the skills of the technical people that allow you know, the academic people to then flourish? Very good. That's usually where I end up, but I've just got a few things that we're, we're just, if we can just skip through. I know we've only got five minutes yeah. left, um, which are really about the, the, the impact of the pandemic on you personally. Um, well, the, the questions that I usually ask, I'll put them all at once and then you can take them in whatever order you like. Um, how did it change the way you worked? I mean, presumably you were, were you home based or did you come in? Um, did you feel personally threatened by the virus and, and how did it, how close did it come to you as an as an infection, um, and were you continuing to do clinical work in the hospital, and so were you having to go in and get gowned up and do all that stuff? Yeah, so I, I um, the first week or so of, of the planning, um, we had weekly, we had daily meetings of the, of, the, of the sort of growing recovery team, and by the time we got to the Thursday, I said, we can't do this anymore, um, we're, gonna, we're about to be thrown out. We really can't be meet, meeting like this. Um, and from then on, we were everything was remote, and we all went home. Um, some people didn't meet each other ever for over a year. So some people had never worked before, each, before with each other before, never knew each other before, um, and didn't actually meet each other physically for well over a year. Um, uh, so yes, I did most of this from you know, my desk at the bottom of the staircase. <laughs> in West Oxfordshire, in the village I grew up in. Um, in terms of um, my own uh, personal uh, feelings and my clinical work, so my clinical work, um, I was never at the front line, so I was never gowned up and all those things. I did do, uh, I dropped my clinics and got somebody else to cover them for about a month in the middle of this when it got, when it was extreme. Um, but otherwise, uh, um, no, I didn't get, I, I wasn't, and that was, you know, I'm lucky. And I recognise that in a sense, um, you know, as a, as a sort of RAF would say, you know, uh, my war was, you know, flying a desk. Um, uh, and yes, I was taken out of that version of the front line. I got a different version of the front line, which was the sort of, you, you know, political stress. I don't just mean, I don't actually mean, um, you know, party politics or whatever, but there were big political issues all the way through, policy issues and so on, in health, in, in, in finance, you know, across the whole piece. And so I did see a huge amount of, uh, amount of that. So I had my own version of stress. Um, and how did you deal with that? Um, well, uh, my, my my children are uh, are all um, are all adults, but they all came home. All three of them came home. My wife was at home, um, and I guess we sort of. And of course, you couldn't go anywhere. The dog got a lot of walking because um, <laughs> that was the only thing you're allowed to do. Um, you know, personally, I personally I felt okay. Um, I mean, I worried about the virus. I had I was admitted to intensive care unit with a, with pneumonia 15 years ago or so. Completely different, um, uh, but I did know what being a patient on ITU felt like. I didn't get ventilated, but I did know what that felt like. And I had been a junior doctor doing 56-hour shifts, 
um, back in Birmingham in the early 1990s. So I knew what it was like, yeah, being completely knackered at the front line for, for the doctors. Um, but it did seem to me that, uh, and the other thing that, that thought that kept going through my mind was that we learn about history going backwards, looking backwards, so we know how the story ended. Think about the Second World War. Um, you know that you know, in the middle of the Blitz in 19, whatever, 1940, 1941, you know how that story is going to end. When you're actually there at the time, you don't know how it's going to end, you don't know when it's going to end, and you don't know if you're going to be there to see it. Um, personally, I never was too worried about whether I would be there to see it, but I thought this, I, you know, we just didn't know what the future looked like. Um, and actually keeping that mindset was useful to actually think, you know, this is actually natural, this is understandable. Um, whereas I think many people were sort of thinking, well, you know, can we just give it another few weeks? And, you know, it was quite obvious to me that we were, we were, we were, we were living this forwards. And that's how history actually works for the people who live through history. Is you live is you live it forwards, and you don't quite know whether it, when it's going to end, and you don't quite know how it's going to end, and you don't quite know whether you're going to be there. It's a it, it was a particular view or mindset that I had. Um, so I mean, the biggest stresses were 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 issues around when um, were, were, were largely issues around things like hydroxychloroquine. Um, we came under a lot of pressure to stop the trial early. Issues like dexamethasone, we, got, we came under a lot of pressure not to do the trial. After we published the results of hydroxychloroquine, you know, we got a lot of, um, um, yeah, from, from limited quarters, we got a lot of um, really quite adverse um, uh, correspondence and so on. You know, complaints and, you, you know, nasty letters to high up people and all this sort of stuff. I was never, uh, thankfully actually directly threatened. I know colleagues who were, um, but it's pretty unpleasant. Um, uh, we studied drugs to find out what the right answer was. That was all I was interested in doing. The thing I was really pleased that we did, which we haven't mentioned, was that we took a view on day one that this had to be, we had to be completely transparent and completely open. And so we put everything that we could on the public website, how many people were being recruited, all the protocols, all the ethics and letters, everything else all on, the, on there. And also that we were very proactive and open on the sort of media front to, you know, taking all those interviews, to, you know, taking opportunities to explain why we needed a trial. I mean, it's, it's hard, you know, help me doctor. Um, and the doctor says, well, I'm going to toss a coin. Is a sort of odd sort of you know it's an odd setup, but actually it turns out that for some of those treatments, tossing a coin was an awful lot better than giving them hydroxychloroquine or convalescent plasma or a number of other things. You know, give it prescribing something is not is is not necessarily doing somebody good, and you know some of these treatments are called you know are considered to be prescribable on a um, compassionate use basis, and I've never quite understood that it's compassionate to give something that you've got no idea whether it's any good or not. Um, it, yeah, so um, being transparent, you know, making sure we, we got this story out there was, was important. And as a result, I mean, people do know what a trial is now. Um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, and yeah, I think we have opened up that area and opened up a lot of people's minds.